couple of comments before we start our lesson. Number one, I am not saying yet that I believe the bride is going to be taken out of the body of Christ. When we started this two weeks ago, my challenge to you was this is something we want to consider. It is a challenge, all right? And I expect you to be doing your part. I've given you takeaways on each lesson. And just stay with me through the series and see where you land when we're done. Because some of us may land at different points, and that's okay. Because I firmly believe there's not one person ever who's had it all correct. There's, as I study more and more, more and more questions come up in my mind. And more and more things I would like to investigate. But I really felt led that uh, many of you have been with me for years. And I felt led to dig into a subject that I hope you will join me in the digging and engage in it. So remember, this is a challenge. And I want to see if uh, what we think when we get through with the series. We're taking different men in the Bible who I believe are a type of Jesus Christ, and we are seeing something we can learn about how they got their bride, their relationship with their bride. And then when we get done, we'll put it all together. So are many of you, you keep coming back. I take it that you are going to stay on the train with me on this journey. Because if I am correct, man, this is significant. Because we're talking about our life for at least a thousand years in his kingdom. This life is nothing compared to what we will have for a thousand years and then on into eternity. And so if I am correct, how we live right now will make a significant difference in the part that we play in his kingdom. So this should be of great interest to all of us. If you listen to the news and everything, you know, if you have beliefs like I do, that I believe we are really living in the last days. And I believe that, that Jesus is going to come for his church before long. And so you can just look around, keep your eye on Israel, because that tribulation period that's coming is for the nation of Israel, because they owe him what? Seven years, and that's the length of the tribulation period, and also for the Gentiles who have rejected him. So uh, I just want to get all that clear again as I go into this lesson that this is a challenge, okay? And I think every one of you, or you wouldn't keep coming, you're interested in the challenge. Yeah, many of you are good Bereans, and let me know when I've said something a little off or you need something explained. That's awesome. So I'm not up here to say that what I say, now there's a lot of things black and white, right? This could be kind of a gray area. Could be. But can we learn something that uh, the Holy Spirit will use so that we will become motivated to serve him more, make sure that the motivations of our heart are in check? Because only he knows the motivation of my heart. So, and you can even pray and ask him to check your motivations, check your heart. Why? So, okay, enough of that. Now, we're studying a series called The Shadows of Christ and His Bride. We had an introduction. 
Last week we looked at the, the beginning of the bride. How did God form her? And now today we're going to look. All of a sudden we're in the fall and the redemption of the bride. So, and then next week we will move on to the next man. So we have two lessons on Adam and Eve in, in the garden. Now, if you remember back in Genesis 1.26, when God made man, he said, let us, who's us? The Trinity, all involved. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and according, and let them rule over all of the earth. They were going to be given dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, over everything that creeps upon the earth. So man was originally created in the image and likeness of God, and God was giving him a royal mandate to be able to have dominion and rule over the earth. All of this was given before the fall. That's an important thing to remember. So, God's gift to rule and have dominion was given to Adam and Eve before the fall. Before the fall, remember, they were in innocence. Sin had not entered. They were in the image and the likeness of God when he gave them this mandate. So make sure we keep those points in our mind as we go through the study. The other thing, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God gave the man, Adam, a couple of commands. The Lord God commanded the man, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will what? Certainly die, surely die, and that death, the physical death would come later, but right now, immediately, it was a spiritual death because had they before had communion with God? Yes, but now the Spirit is what needs to be born again because the Spirit is now, now not in communication. Notice that the command was given before the woman was created. So who got the command? Adam, the man. Now, we have a principle that we learned in the introduction and we emphasized it again last week that it was the man plus the woman, and God said they are now what? One flesh. And to rule and to reign, it was given that he was incomplete without her. Right? So God made the help meet. Remember the puzzle piece? And the puzzle piece fit correctly into the puzzle. So now we have it complete, and we have one flesh, and they're going to rule together. Keep that in mind as we go through the lesson. Now, Adam is also to cleave to his bride. That's another important point. So y'all have a lot to remember right now. That's why I'm putting all these up at the front of the lesson. If I understand this principle, he's to cleave, they are one flesh to rule, it's going to give us a lot of light on things in Genesis 1, 2, 3. First, why did the serpent deceive Eve? But he didn't deceive Adam. That's a question. Why did Adam, though he was not deceived, why did he go ahead and partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil following Eve partaking of the tree? Did he know he was not supposed to? Yes. And then, this was a fascinating question, why did he give her the name Eve after the fall and after the curse? Before that, she was only called a woman. 
She didn't get a name till after the fall, after the curse. We'll get to all of that. Now, we are looking at, first of all, the deceit. Then we're going to have the fall. Then we'll have the redemption of the bride. Satan targets who? The woman. He'll target the woman. And you and I are going to see if we can link together Genesis 3, 1 through 17. And we're going to hop over to the book of 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 and go to Paul's writings. And we're going to try to link Genesis 3 with Paul. That's another great study. So we have some great things ahead of us in this lesson. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1, and first we're just going to read the two passages, okay? Chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What is he doing immediately with that question? Planning doubt in her mind. We read on, and we're going to see that Satan is building a web of deceit. The woman says to the serpent, Well, we can eat of every fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Was that in the command? No, she added this. She's changing the word of God, lest you die. Now, the question who told the woman about this command? Adam had to, because the command was given from Adam directly to, I mean, from God directly to Adam, the man. Now, the man was, he should have, and we assume that he's the one that told her what God had said and gave her the command. Was he the one that was to teach the wife? Yes. So he instructed her in God's word. Now we go on in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, notice he still is talking to the woman, you shall not surely die. Is this outright denial of God's word? For God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes are going to be open. You will be like a God and you will know good and evil. So he's deceiving her about God's intent. It's almost like God's withholding something from you. So we see the scenario here. Then the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to her eye, desirable to gain wisdom. For, and she took some and she ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Okay. Now we're going to 1 Timothy. We're going to hop clear to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And I want to link what we just read with Paul's writings over here in 1 Timothy 2. In verse 12, Paul says, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority. That's what you want to underline, star, put a box around. He said, I don't want a woman to teach, or what? Usurp authority. Is that what Eve did? Yes, okay. No, do not usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, notice how he goes straight to the creation. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. 
Adam was not deceived, but the woman was thoroughly deceived, and she's the one that was in the transgression. Keep going. Notwithstanding, or nevertheless, in spite of all of that that we just read, she's going to be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. We have a lot to unpack. There's a lot here. How can we link them together? What does all this mean? In the context with Paul in 1 Timothy, he spent a lot of time, remember, he's trying to show the structure of the church. And he spent a lot of time on the role of the woman not exercising or usurping authority over the man, <clears throat> as Eve did. Did she take the lead in eating something that was forbidden? She's the one that took the lead. Now, the word authority is Strong's 831, and it means in this passage to domineer, to govern, or have mastery over. And the interesting thing, this is the only time that word's used in the New Testament. That particular Greek word, talking about a woman in the church not usurp usurping authority over the man. Now, the transgression is another uh, interesting word, parabasis, deliberately going over the line. That's when you're in transgression. Most of you probably had a child, I did, the youngest one, who you could set a boundary or draw a line in the sand, and what would they do? They would go over it. That's exactly what Eve did. That's what a transgression is. You know the boundary, you know the rule, but you deliberately decide to be disobedient and go over it. Now, Paul's explanation in 1 Timothy, we're going to see three key words that he uses, and it sounds just like, I think he was reading Genesis 3, because he's going to use some of the same verbiage when he's talking about the woman's place in the church. And he grounds his instruction for the church in the events of creation and the fall. So, number one, he says the woman is to uh, be silent. She's not to usurp authority over the man. And then his first point, Adam was formed first. That's exactly what Genesis tells us that Adam was formed first. So Paul points us to Genesis 2 and 3 to give us the sequence of the creation narrative. Adam, the man, was formed first. And if I look at Genesis 2, verse 7, it says the Lord God formed. You see that same word here that you see Paul use, same word. He formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a what? A living soul. The word form means fashion. Think of a potter, just like God is with us. He's the potter, and he was taking the, the dirt and everything and forming Adam. Now, point number two, he, Paul says Adam was formed first, then who? then Eve. So not only does God form the man first in Genesis 2-7, but then Eve, she doesn't even start getting talked about to verse 18. So he's formed Adam, and she's going to come, but not until we get to verse 18. Remember verse 18 we had this last week. 
before he created Eve, remember he had Adam. And his statement was, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper that fits him, fit just for him. Now, verse 7, he's formed the man. Now, what happens in the meantime till he says it's not good for him to be alone? In 2.8, God plants the garden in Eden. 2.9, he makes the trees to spring up. Then in verse 10, he's going to put the man in the garden to work and take care of it. Verse 16, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. He's giving the commands now to Adam. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. If you do, you will surely die. So he's giving the man the moral vision for the garden. And then in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, You know, it's not good that you should be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for you. So we have quite a bit of stuff that happened in the sequence between him forming Adam and between he says, you need a helper. Now, prior to the making of the woman, you remember this from last week, God's going to parade all, we're going to have a parade of all the beasts of the field, all of the animals are going to come, and Adam, you give them a name. And so that happened, and God seems to be taking his time. You need a helper. Well, let's get all these animals out here, and you name them. And all of this seems intentional to make a point. And the scripture says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would name them. And whatever Adam called those creatures, that was their name. Then in verse 20, So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field, but did we find a helper for Adam yet? No, we still don't have one, not fit for him. But by naming all the animals, it seems like Adam discovered for every animal there's a what? A male and a female. So after a few dozen cases, here's male and female aardvark, clear to male and female zebra. From A to Z, he got to the end, and it's like, where's mine? I don't see anything that will fit me. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So now we get into God's design for finishing the work of mankind. Does mankind usually involve both? Man and woman is called mankind. So he formed the bride, and we went over this last week in detail. The Lord God caused that deep sleep. Remember the same word used as Lazarus asleep, as Jesus asleep. We talked about that last week. And he took one of his ribs, and remember he opened his side, and then he closed up the flesh at that place. God took Adam out of the picture. He's making his bride, and then he's going to present the bride to Adam. But where's Adam while God is making his bride? He's asleep. He's out of the picture. All right. So the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made the woman, and then God himself, when he woke up, God presented his bride to him, correct? And we know all that from Scripture. And then in verse 22 to 24, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made the woman, brought her to the man, and here's Adam's words. This is now bone of my bone, she's flesh of my flesh, 
shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and what? Cleave. We're, that word's going to be very important. Cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. So this is the root of the role of a woman in the design of God. Her place was ordained in the order of creation. It says Adam was formed first. First in the Greek is protos, and it means he's first in rank. Okay, everybody following so far? A lot of that's review. So over in 1 Timothy with the Apostle Paul, in verse 13 he said, Adam was first formed, then Eve, and then he goes on to say, and Adam wasn't deceived. It was the woman that was deceived, and she's the one that stepped over the line, stepped over the boundary that God had set. So let's look at Satan's method. It says, Satan, in order to bring about the fall of Adam. Remember, is he the head of the human race? Right, he's Adam number one. To bring about the fall of Adam, the serpent approached the woman with the question, is that what God really said, that you shall not eat every tree of every tree of the garden? So we see the doubt that is now placed, that seed of doubt is in her mind. Is that what God really said? And I immediately thought, just because I've had a daughter that was a transgender, I immediately thought of all of these LGBT people that are saying, I am a transgender Christian. I am this Christian. You know, and we can go beyond the LGBT. A lot of things. Is that with God's word? No. But can Satan put a seed of doubt that God said this is okay? You will hear many people that have something even besides LGBT, and they will say, God approves of this. He has said it's okay. And you can find millions of churches now that will affirm you in that. Because you're finding fewer and fewer that will stand for truth. So verse 2 and 3. So the woman said to the serpent, We can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, and we can't touch it. Well, that wasn't true, because that wasn't in, in uh, the command of God, lest you die. And then we go into Satan's outright denial. That web of deceit is really getting tighter. So he said, you are not going to die. I mean, that's an outright lie against what God had said. God just knows that in the day you eat, your eyes are going to be open. You will be as a God knowing good and evil. Is that enticing? Sure. Yeah. Is it enticing? Yes, that is very enticing to be drawn into something like that. The result was she saw, you know, we go to the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and all that, that it was good for food, it was pleasing to her eye, and also to gain wisdom. So she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The result, we have the fall of Adam and now has sin entered the world. It was a perfect world, perfect environment. They were in God's image. 
So Satan deceived Eve. That was his method. But now let's look at the way of the serpent and see how his was different. In fact, it's the reverse of God's. God proceeded in one way, man, then the woman, right? And he gave the commands to the man, and then he was to, I guess, I'll assume, tell the woman or teach the woman, and then the, uh, she was deceived. The serpent is going to be in the opposite direction. If I look in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 7 says, God first formed who? The man. In 2.15, it says, God took him and he put him where? In the garden. Verse 16, it says, then God gives the commands to the man. And then verse 22, out of the man, he made the woman. So there's the order that God created right there. Now, if we turn the page to chapter 3, let's look at how Satan approached. The serpent first approached and spoke to who? The woman who ate first. She did, but when God came calling, who did he call? The man. Exactly the opposite order from what God established and created. So in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Did they know they had done wrong? And the Lord God called to who? The man. And he said, where are you? And Adam said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He realized all that. Did anybody tell him? Mm -mm. Verse 11. So God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of that tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? Have you ever approached your kids when they were little? <laughs> you did exactly what we told you not to. <laughs> okay, verse 12 and 13. Now we're going to play the blame game. So the man said, it's the woman. What's he still calling her? Woman. It's the woman that you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. And so God turns to the woman. And what have you done? And the woman said, well, it was a serpent that deceived me and I ate. Did she know she was deceived? Yes. I mean, she's saying that right here. So if we look at... First Timothy, and I look over in Genesis, my key word that links these two passages together is the word deceived. So it's a key word, and it forges the link to Genesis 3, and Eve, out of her own mouth, well, it was a serpent that deceived me. That's why I ate. Now, the verb deceive throughout Scripture now, it is going to call to mind the fall and the action the serpent took. So if I see the word deceived now anywhere in the Bible, somebody's getting deceived, who do I immediately think of? The serpent and Eve. You're going to think of that all the time. They're connected with that. So when Paul's talking to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I'm afraid that just like that serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind is going to get led astray 
from sincere and purity of devotion to Christ. He's trying to get the church to straighten up, to walk like they're supposed to, to be all God wants them to be. And to be that way, do we have to have a sincere devotion to Jesus Christ? We have to be on that potter's wheel. We have to be surrendered to him and let the Holy Spirit work in us. And Paul says, I'm afraid that you're going to get deceived and you'll be led astray from that pure devotion to Jesus Christ. And the church and you as an individual will not become everything that God wants you to be. So the serpent, we can go to John the Revelator in Revelation 12, 9. The serpent is known as who? The deceiver. He says it's the ancient serpent. He's called the devil and Satan. He's the deceiver of the entire world. And so in 1 Timothy, when I say, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and she came to be in the transgression, do I know the serpents involved even without mentioning his name? I know that. All right, and that, I learned a new word. Quint essentially. How many, did anybody know that word? Wow. I'm impressed. <laughs> I didn't know that word. It means deceive is the primary example. Quint essentially. He deceive, when I say deceive, that's the quint essentially term that I know we're talking about being deceived in the serpent all throughout Scripture. So without even mentioning the serpent, the passive verb was deceived makes his presence unmistakable. Paul doesn't even have to tell me the serpent was there because I know it because of the word deceived. Everybody got that? Okay. Now, if I put verse 13 and 14 together in Paul's letter, it points to the pre-fall picture of God's order. Adam formed first, then Eve. And it also is going to tell me the order in which the fall occurred because the serpent's craftiness is made plain. Eve is deceived, and she's the one in transgression. So Paul makes that very clear in his letter. So rather than proceeding according to God's design, God's protocol that he established in Genesis, approaching the man, the serpent's going to target who? The woman. We have the law of first mention. If you, uh, if you get into really studying and digging into your Bible, this is a law you need to keep in mind when you study and go through God's Word. When something is first mentioned in the Bible, especially these first 11 chapters of Genesis have a lot of first mentions, that, that principle, you will interpret that the same throughout the Bible. The law of first mention. That subject remains meaning the same every time you see it in the Bible, like the word deceived. It's going to mean the same thing. So, we have the first mention of Satan, the serpent, in chapter 3, correct? Now, did I learn his ways are subtle? He's crafty. He's the deceiver. Does he use the word of God? Yes, we saw him do that with Jesus when Jesus was in his temptation in the wilderness. His methods will remain unchanged. So how you see him act here, you're going to see that all the way through. That's what the law of first mention means. 
And Paul, even in 2 Corinthians 11, he said, It is no marvel, for Satan himself can be transformed into what? An angel of light. You know, that is really a frightening thought. Do we need to pray that we will not be deceived, that we will have discernment, that God will protect us from the deceits of, of Satan because he can appear as an angel of light? I have heard people say that they believe this and they believe they had a religious, spiritual experience. And I want to tell you, it was not an experience from God. But because it appears to be one, you can't talk them out of it. They believe it. And it says his ministers can appear as a minister of righteousness. The primary attack is always against the people of God, and he uses the word of God against us. So it's vitally important that you and I, you and I must know this word. We have got to know it and then ask the Holy Spirit to really help us understand it, to teach it to us. Put a guard on my mind and don't let me be deceived. We have to know exactly what God has said in his word, but know God has spoken with finality because there are people out there that will lead you astray. So the final court of appeals, when something is brought before you, it's always the word of God, never man's reasoning or some man's interpretation. Show me in the scripture. Now, we go back to the woman. She was to be the helper of man, right? She was to follow his lead, live in his provision, find safety in his strength and protection in his courage. When the woman got out from under the authority of the husband over here, and did she try to operate independently? Well, we saw what happened. When she operated independently, she got in conflict with the enemy, and the enemy was able to deceive her. Then came the curse, and with the curse is the tendency that we want to rule. I didn't hear many amens there. That man listening has been very quiet. <laughs> so what's the result here? This is the conflict of the ages. And it came from the curse. Now, let's go to the curse. In fact, chapter 3, verse 16. Unto the woman, he said, notice she's still called woman. I am going to greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you're going to bring forth children. Thy desire shall be to thy husband. Well, we're going to talk about that because it means different than what that sounds like. And he shall rule over thee. Now, this is a, some commentary from John MacArthur. He says, women have always desired to rule. Part of the curse God brought upon man and woman in the fall was that a woman would desire to control man, and he would have to rule over her. Hence, the conflict of the sexes. It was born out of the fall and the curse that God brought. Now, you, my little rabbit's back, but this is going to be a short little rabbit trail, just a real short one. We look at the word. Do you see in the curse 
her desire would be for her husband. Okay, that word desire used there in the curse is only one other time in the first five books of the Bible. Let's go see what it says, because it will make that statement very clear. God's talking to Cain. Cain knew the right thing to do, correct? We know his parents, that he, they would have taught him, because Abel sure knew. Even still, God graciously allowed Cain the opportunity, you know what, I've got you, give you an opportunity to make things right. And then he warned him. In verse 7, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you've got to rule over it. Same word, the curse, in Genesis 3.15. Satan, does he desire to take control of us? Yes, that's the same word that the desire of the woman will be over her husband. Same word. The Hebrew word translated as crouching in Genesis 4-7 can refer to lying in wait like a predator lurking for its prey. That's sin. It desires to have you and rule over you. It's the same verb associated with an ancient Semitic term for demons that were believed to guard the entrance or doorway to a building. Thus, the text characterizes sin as a demonic presence, a predatory animal just waiting to pounce on Cain. That's that word desire. We're done with that. Let's go on. Get back to our lesson. So, he's going to talk to Adam now. Because you hearkened unto the voice of your wife, Adam, the head of the human race, did fall. But he did not fall first, correct? Okay. Now, both Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. That's clear. But it's clear that she sinned first. She was in the transgression. She stepped over the line first. Yet the Bible never blames the woman for the human race, the fall. Always blames who? Adam. And we have a scripture in Romans 5, 12. Through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all of us have sinned. All. So... Adam is responsible because he had a difference of authority than she did. Adam had an authority God gave him that he didn't give to the woman. Therefore, more authority, the responsibility that the woman did not have. So Adam failed in his responsibility really in a far more significant way than she did because Eve was what? Deceived. Adam was not deceived. He sinned knowing exactly what he was doing when he rebelled. And we're going to dig into that in just a few minutes. So the fall of man. The fall was the result of not only disobeying God's command not to eat, but the fall was the result of violating the divinely appointed role of the sexes. So woman acted independently of man. Man stepped out of his role. 
And instead of maintaining the leadership, he acted in submission to the woman, and the whole reversal was part and parcel of the fall because they reversed God's order. But this is a great verse. Nevertheless, notwithstanding, in spite of, she's going to be saved in childbearing. Now, that's a strange statement. But I want to tell you, this is not talking about salvation justification. You're not going to be justified because you have a child. No. So it's got to mean something different. They shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Remember, Adam was not deceived. The woman was clearly deceived, and she was in the transgression. She stepped over the boundary line. Have we heard people in our culture even say it was all her fault? She has the stigma, right, of causing the fall. But God's grace, you're going to see God's grace and God's mercy over this because he is going to allow her to be saved through childbearing. It's what it says. Notice in your notes, she shall be saved. What tense? Future. That's a future tense. But then it says, she shall be saved. And saved means delivered. It's not being justified. But it switches from she to what word? They. If they. So it includes more than just one woman. It broadens to include all women. So that's for you and me. So I think we ought to pursue it. John MacArthur talks about mercy. Do you see God's mercy? Do you see God's grace coming? It is God's grace that now will release the woman from having the stigma, from the stigma of having caused the fall of the race by childbearing. The woman may have caused the race to fall by stepping out of her God-intended design, but now she, and it will move on to they, are given the priority responsibility of raising a godly seed. Now, the woman led the race into sin, but because of God's grace and mercy on us, he has given women the privilege of leading the race out of sin to godliness. And in raising godly seed, it is the godliness and the virtue of the mother that has the greatest impact on the next generation. Woman's challenge, of course, most of us are past all of that, but you still can have an impact on your adult children. You have an impact on your nieces, your nephews, the kids that maybe in Sunday school, whatever, you have a great impact on them to raise godly seed. So MacArthur says, women are delivered from being left like in this second-class, permanently stigmatized situation because she was the one that ate first and then caused the man to eat. They are delivered from being thought of as permanently weak and deceivable because of God's grace. So the pain of childbearing was the punishment for the sin. But the result of bearing the child is the deliverance from the stigma of that sin. He goes on to say, now the pain you go through in bearing a child, it will remind you of the curse. Reminds you this is painful because of sin. 
but the result, God's restoring grace. And he puts us back in a place where we can make a positive contribution to the godliness of the next generation. As I said, whether it's your own children, children in the nursery, children that you come in contact with, young people, you have a great influence. And you can be instrumental in leading that group to be godly. She may have caused a generation to plunge into sin, but she can by being a mother who raises godly children. We can be instrumental in bringing a generation to God. Now, he also makes a note, and I agree with this. We know from the New Testament with Paul, there is a God-given gift of singleness. We know that. But single women can also have a great influence on any of the children they're teaching, nieces, all of that. And some women we know remain barren. That's something we don't understand, but that's for God's purposes. Now, notwithstanding, she's going to be saved in childbearing, but do you notice the word if? There's some requirements. If you continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So notice, he's been talking about the women before in the chapter that were just flaunting their sexuality and even doing it in the church. He said, you have to be the kind of woman who are, you have to be the kind of woman who you're not into clothes, you're not into all the fashion, you're, you know, you are dressing discreetly. That's what he has said before this passage. And the outward flaunting of sexuality and desire and wealth. And we know that some will make very legalistic rules out here in some denominations, and they take that from here. He says they, the requirements that your faith in the Lord, your sincere love for God, your holiness, your purity of life, having modest self-control, Mark your spiritual state as one that will bring forth children who will bless the world. As she once brought forth a curse, Eve now is going to be able to bring forth a blessing because of her seed. Now, uh, Louis Burkhoff in Systematic Theology, he says, In his mercy, God let Adam and Eve live. Why? Because the Messiah is going to come from the seed of the woman. What a blessing for her that her seed would one day bring the promised Messiah, the Redeemer. Because God is all-knowing, he knew from eternity that Adam would disobey him. He knew that. Adam's only hope and of his descendants. Now, if God knew that, his only hope, it's got to come from God himself. God's going to turn around you know, they will say they kind of blew it, but God's going to turn around and he is going to bring the Redeemer and so forth to take care of this. It says God chose woman. He chose a woman to be the means by which the Savior will enter the world for mankind. He says in uh, Genesis 3, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. He is going to crush your head, talking to the serpent, and you will bruise his heel. 
So there's one key verse in the Old Testament that points us to the only way for people to be turned back to a right relationship with God, and it's in Genesis 3.15. A word, if you don't know it, that you might find interesting, this is the proto-evangelium of the Bible. Proto means first, evangelium means gospel or good news. This is the first mention of the good news in the entire Bible called the Proto-Evangelium, the first announcement in the Bible about the Redeemer, the seed of the woman. When God pronounces his curse on the serpent, he turns around and he includes the great promise that we have a Messiah. There will be a king coming, and that's impl implied in Genesis 3.15. Burkhoff goes on to say, in the last analysis, the seed of the woman is who? Jesus Christ. Is he going to assume human nature? Is he fully God, fully man? We know he, is, he takes on flesh, John 1, 14. He will be put to death on the cross. Does he gain a decisive victory over Satan? Yes. So we have a key here. God chose the woman she was the one that transgressed, deliberately stepped over the line. She was deceived. She gave to Adam, and he ate. But God chooses a woman to be the means by which the Savior would enter the world to save mankind. And in Galatians 4, it says, When the fullness of the time came... Do you remember our lesson on the 400 silent years? Oh, yeah. God didn't send a prophet... For 400 years, but remember we had the stage and the curtain was closed and we looked at what was going on behind the curtain. For 400 years, God was setting the stage, getting everything ready. He needed Rome to be in power, needed the Roman Empire and so forth. And then when the curtain opens, the fullness of time and God sent his son, Jesus Christ, sent forth his son, born of who? A woman. Okay. So now we talk about Adam 2. Adam 2 is who? Jesus Christ. Was he sinless, holy, and innocent? Yes. Adam number 1 failed the test. So Adam number 2, since he is the real thing, needs to pass the test, right? So Satan appeared to have the victory when Jesus was crucified, but it was actually Jesus that triumphs over sin, death, and the devil. Now, Adam number two, Jesus Christ, both fully God and fully man, will he keep God's law perfectly? Will he bear the punishment, full punishment for our sin? Yes, the perfect once-for-all sacrifice so that all the people could now be in full communion with their creator. So let's look at the punishment that followed the first Adam's sin. All right, we're going back to Genesis 3.17 we can trace a sevenfold, does the number seven surprise you? No. Sevenfold consequence upon the entrance of sin into this world. And you look at two verses, three verses in Genesis 3, and here's what happened. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You're going to eat food from it all the days of your life. 
However, that ground's going to produce thorns and thistles for you, and you're going to eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And then what did God do? He drove them out of the garden, and he put a flaming sword there, barring the way to the tree of life. This was the execution of God's threat that he told Adam back in Genesis 2:17, if you eat of the tree, you will certainly die, and there will be consequences. Now, Jesus is the second Adam, correct? All right. So the curse was because of the first Adam. Let's look at the second Adam. Did he bear our curse? Yes. The Lord Jesus completely bore the full consequences of man's sin, in Galatians 3, 13, he redeemed you and I from the curse of the law. By becoming, he became the curse for you and me. It is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. In Isaiah 53, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then it goes on to say, he literally bore in his own body the consequences of Adam's sin. And it says, Jesus came forth and he was wearing a crown of thorns. Thorns were the symbol of the curse. Did you see that back in Genesis 3? Yes. On the cross, Jesus bore those thorns, which were literal thorns, but they were emblematic of him bearing the curse for all of us. And then corresponding with the sweat of his face, in which the first man was to eat bread. Remember the curse we just read? The second man, Jesus, being in anguish, he began praying more fervently, and his sweat became like what? Drops of blood falling down to the ground. Just as the first Adam was going to return to dust, so the cry of Jesus in Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue is cleaving to my jaws. You have brought me into what? The dust of death. The sword of justice which barred the way to the tree of life was sheathed in the side of God's Son. Jehovah had said, Awake, O shepherd, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. And then the counterpart of God's original threat to Adam, namely spiritual death, which is the separation of your soul and spirit from God, it's witnessed in the most solemn cry of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So did Christ reverse the effects of the fall? Everything that was cursed over here, God reversed it in Jesus Christ. So God alone is able to bring good out of evil and make even the wrath of man to praise him. In the sphere of redemption, Christ reversed all the effects of the fall, but because of it, you and I have a better thing. Yes, the redeemed, we have gained more through Jesus than we lost through Adam. And here's some. The redeemed, you and I, occupy a more exalted position. Where are we? Spiritually. We're sitting with Christ in the heavenly, spiritually. Before the fall, Adam dwelt in an earthly paradise. But the redeemed now, we have been made to sit with Christ in heavenly places. That's where we are spiritually, and that is from Ephesians. Through redemption, do we now have a nobler nature? Yes. Before the fall, man just had a natural life. 
But now, all in Christ, we are a partaker of the divine nature. We have obtained a new standing before God. Adam was innocent, but you and I are righteous. We are justified with his robe of righteousness. You and I have a better inheritance. Adam was the Lord of Eden, but you and I, heirs of all things, heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. In Christ, believers enjoy a closer relationship to God than was possible even before the fall because we are members of what? The body of Christ. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We have been taken into union with deity itself. The Son of God is not ashamed to call us his brethren. Truly, where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. Now, when the Lord had asked Adam, Did you eat of that forbidden fruit? Adam's response had shown had already sin and selfishness entered his heart because he's fallen now. And when God asked him, he said, what's his answer? It's that woman you gave me. God had responded with words of curse and judgment. In pain, the woman is now going to bring forth children. Her desire is going to be to rule her husband. There's going to be struggles and difficulties in childbirth and family life and marriage. The ground is cursed. Man's late daily labor is going to become a difficult struggle for survival, which is going to end in death. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Misery, suffering, and death is going to come a, a daily reality in this fallen world. True? Yes. But in the midst of all of this, and the announcement of the curse on all of creation, Adam decides to name his wife. This just seems strange. Strange time and place to give a name to anybody, but he's going to give her the name Eve. We've, the curse has been pronounced, the judgment's been pronounced, and now in verse th chapter 3, verse 20, Adam's going to give her a name. He's not going to call her woman now. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she is the mother of all living. However, I thought this was very interesting. The name Adam gave his wife didn't demonstrate any unbelief. This we can see is an act of faith that he gave her this name at this time. In the midst of judgment, God's been speaking those words of the gospel. It's the seed of the woman that's going to be able to crush the head of the serpent. God has promised salvation. He's promised life. You saw that in the verses preceding his naming. This is the promise that, of God to which Adam is clinging. There is hope for the future because he's already told him about the seed of the woman that's going to bring the Redeemer. Not in himself, the first Adam who had failed, but in the second Adam who's going to come from the woman. And so he names her Eve. This is showing his faith. This is showing his hope in God's promises. God's promise pointed Adam to his wife, that woman that you gave me. Remember, he had just said that. But now he's looking over at his wife. Salvation and life is going to come from her seed from Jesus Christ. 
Adam embraced that promise in faith by giving his wife this beautiful name, Eve. She is going to become the mother of all the living. This we could look at as this is the first profession of faith of a sinner. Adam was a sinner at this time, right? He publicly acknowledged God's promise and he sought his life outside of himself in Jesus Christ. Adam understood, my wife is going to bear children. And based on God's promise, Adam knew life is going to come from her. Eternal life is going to come from her seed, Jesus Christ the Redeemer, the mother of all living, the mother of every human being in history. Even more significant, her offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, he will defeat the devil and the entire host of hell. This faith is so surprising. It is so amazing that Adam was not able to work this faith in himself. The fallen, corrupted heart, does that kind of heart, is it evil only? And it hates God. It will reject God's promises in unbelief. That Adam spoke in faith shows God was already fulfilling his promise to put enmity, separation between the devil and his seed and the woman in her seed. Adam and Eve had sided with the devil, had they not? In rebellion and unbelief. But in mercy, God pulled them back. He'd set them apart from the devil and he had worked new life in them. So God's past work having to do with bringing Eve into existence. What's his present work right now? He's bringing Adam to Jesus Christ, his, bride's, uh, his son's bride into existence. So we can study how he did this Adam, and we can see, we can get some pictures of how he'll do his son. God took a rib from Adam's side, and he made it into a woman. That Hebrew word is bana, B-A-N-A-H, and it means to build or construct or fashion. So Eve was created in Adam at the beginning, later taken out of Adam, built into a bride, and then presented back to Adam. That was the procedure. In Matthew 16, we're with Peter and Jesus, some of the disciples out there. They're out there at Caesarea Philippi, and there are all kinds of pagan temples out there because it's a very pagan area out there. And Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answered and he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he tells Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock. What is the foundation that the church is built on? Jesus Christ and the statement he's just made that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what the foundation of the church is. And I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I see that the church was created in Christ from eternity, being presently called out of the body and built into a bride. The time when this process will be completed and the bride presented back to the Son, it's still in the future. This is a quote from Paul Bilheimer, who wrote a book called Destined for the Throne. Now, I'm going back to 2 Corinthians 11.2. 2 
Paul's talking to that church at Corinth. They needed a lot of help, as we know. A lot of carnal people in there. And Paul said, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I've betrothed you. That group, that, those people, I've betrothed you to one husband. So this is an engagement period. You're betrothed. I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ. The word chaste is word number 53, hagnos. It's the root from hagiosmos. The word sanctified comes from that. So Paul's desire for that church, he wants to present them as a sanctified, holy group to God. The holiness or hagiosmos in the Greek was defined by Westcott as preparing you to be in the presence of God. That's how he wanted the church to be. Then he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, I'm wanting to present you as this holy, pure church to Jesus Christ. But he says, I'm afraid Satan's going to be able to deceive you and lead you away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Paul saw the local church as a bride, a group. You're engaged to be married to Jesus Christ. If you're born again, you are betrothed to Christ right now. The church and the individual Christians, we are told we must keep ourselves pure as we prepare to meet our beloved. The peril of that is unfaithfulness to your fiancé. The engaged woman owes her love and allegiance to but one. It's your betrothed. If she shares herself with any other man, she's guilty of unfaithfulness. We, he says, in the simplicity, the sincerity, we are to have a singleness of devotion, be single-minded towards Christ. If I have a divided heart, it's going to lead to a defiled life, and I'll have a destroyed relationship with my betrothed. Adam was to what? Cleave to his wife, because they are what? One flesh. Eve disobeyed God by partaking of the forbidden fruit. Are they one flesh? Okay, a part of Adam's very being, were they bone of bone, flesh of flesh and all? They were one, one thing, but she has fallen. She's in a fallen state. He wasn't at this time, right? So we have a problem. Even a fallen state, go back to the principle on page one. They were given rulership and dominion together. But she's in a fallen state. So now Adam really is not in a position to rule. Adam could not rule apart from Eve. What did God said? It is not good that you are alone. But your helper, part of you, has fallen. Adam, I believe, made a choice. He was told to cleave, cleave to his wife. And I believe he made a choice to be with her. Let's look at that a little bit further. I think Adam acted with a view to Eve's redemption in order that he is a complete being now, Adam with Eve, 
might one day fulfill the purpose for man's creation. He chose, I believe, to, quote, die, that's a spiritual death, to be with his bride. We continue to live in a fallen world characterized by brokenness and struggles. There's difficulties in family life. There's struggles against thorns and thistles in our daily work. And we have the sadness of death all around us. But professing our faith is to confess that there is life and hope in the seed of the woman, which is Jesus Christ. In him there is hope. If we're struggling with difficulties in our marriage, in him there is strength for the task of bearing and raising children in the fear of God's name. Many of us, myself included, we have many regrets over the mothers that we were. And we were not the example that we always needed to be in front of our children. But I believe right now, your children, your grandchildren, if they see the life of Christ in you, they need to see it right now. So you need to be surrendered and so forth. And a lot of times we can make up, in a sense, some of those regrets because they see in our, in our struggles, in our circumstances, they see now that you have the strength of Christ and you're not depressed about it. You are living in victory even if you're in a dark pit. Y'all with me? Be that example. Let your children, your grandchildren, nieces and nephews, let them see Christ living in you like your, your faith is real. In him, our work in this creation, with its thorns and its thistles, it's not meaningless and hopeless. In and through him, death is not the final end. It's the entrance to continue our eternal life. The second man, the last Adam, I believe Jesus Christ is going to rule with his bride. Does he have a kingdom coming? King of kings and Lord of lords. And you've got a lot of the Old Testament telling you about his kingdom. He acted in complete accord if we look at Adam 1, with a view to redemption of the people, his bride. Christ, who knew no sin, was he made sin for us? We were in a fallen state. Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. And Hebrews tells us the purpose is to bring many sons to glory. He is creating right now a family, a bride, to be with him in his kingdom and in eternity. In Christ's millennial kingdom, I believe he and his redeemed bride are going to take the scepter and ascend the throne together. We can go to promises to overcomers in the churches, which I have one in a minute. Look at Revelation 3. The church at Sardis. He said, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. Only he can make us worthy. And he says, those who overcome will be clothed in the white garments. And in Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes... I'm going to grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and he's sitting down with his father on his throne right now. 
if we could even grasp what that really means. Grasp it. But he says you need to be an overcomer. An overcomer in your life as you live for him. And we'll end with 1 John. He says, Beloved, we are the sons of God when? Now. You see the word now? Now we are the sons of God. And it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And if you have that hope, what am I supposed to be doing? Purify yourself. You purify yourself by the washing of the water of the word. We're told to pursue holiness. You have that hope that you're going to be like him, have that glorified body, rule and reign with him. You have that hope. Here you are in the word, letting it wash over you. And this is what will purify you. And all praise goes to him because he's our sanctifier. He is the word. He is truth. And he will do this if we're just obedient and yield to sanctification. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you will do the work in us. We just have to be obedient. And God, for that, we praise you that you will do a mighty work in each of us. And oh, Lord, may our heart's motivation be pure because we love you God we just thank you for the promises that you give us eye has not seen ear has not heard what you have in store for us oh God if we just have a glimpse how it would change our lives and we give you the praise for that in Christ's name amen